Judy Leaf gave the following talk at the conclusion of a retreat she led at Zen Mountain Monastery. She's a Buddhist teacher who trained under the Tibetan meditation master, Venerable Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Judy has been a teacher and practitioner for over 35 years and continues to teach throughout the world. Welcome, everyone. Uh, it's an honor to be here at Zen Mountain Monastery once again. Um, you know, the history goes back centuries, the connection between the Zen and the Tantra lineages. So it's nice to be continuing that uh, inter-fertilization uh, project, uh, inter-inspiration of some sort, that particular garden is being grown and those traditions so powerful being carried on. And I'd like to begin just by offering gratitude to all those uh, people in uh, China, Tibet, Japan, who are um, the source for these lineages, going back obviously to the Buddha in India. And we're so fortunate to be the benefit of you know very many sacrifices and adventures and inspirations and hard work of people from very far away, very long ago. And these lineages depend on people transmitting teachings to other people. The continual churn, so to speak, of uh, teachers, students, students becoming teachers, students, and teachers linked together in an unbroken chain going all the way back to the time of the Buddha. So I just have some informal remarks today. So don't be too formal. <laughs> <laughs> You're actually doing zazen now. <laughs> You're just sitting there. <laughs> and uh, which is, you know, I mean, not that you ever stop. I know that. <clears throat> uh -huh which is ideal, 24-7, that's it. Um, so I just wanted to comment on a couple of short quotes that I found. Um, so the, the first quote is from this um, famous Nyingma teacher, Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche, who was a big inspiration to many people within the Tibetan lineages. Uh, he was one of the teachers to my teacher, and he was um, very big. He was over six feet, which is really big, especially for Tibetans, so six foot four or something like that, and very big and <laughs> in all dimensions. And he mostly didn't wear many clothes, just like a kind of a thin skirt thing. And we called him Mr. Universe. <laughs> <laughs> Because he, he was like the sky. Uh, in, in his presence, everything just became multiplied in size somehow. Um, so that is still Ken Serumtra. He's written many books and things you can find if you want. Um, so here's a quote, and it's called, One friend will never leave you. So it goes, sooner or later, you will have to part from even your dearest friends. But one friend will never leave you, even though you may never been aware of her existence. 
You begin to discover it by listening to the teachings of a spiritual master. Then ties will deepen as you cultivate sustained mental calm and profound insight into reality. In the end, you will discover that it has always been near you and will always be near you. This is the truest friendship you will ever cultivate. And the second quote is from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who's my teacher. And this goes, once you realize that the Dharma is you and you are in it already, you don't feel particularly joyous. There's no extra bliss or any kind of high at all. And if you're high, you're high all the time, so there's no reference point of comparison. And if you're not high, then you're extraordinarily ordinary. <laughs> um, so those quotes both relate to what is called Buddha nature. Uh, and based on the question, I think humans forever, everywhere have had is what is our basic nature? What is our point of being here? What is our nature? And the Buddhist teachings emphasize that fundamentally our nature is awake, luminous and empty, and non-conceptual, intrinsic awareness and understanding. It's called the Buddha nature. Nature is Buddha, is awake, which is kind of hard to uh, imagine sometimes. You say, oh yeah, that's a joke. Me? <laughs> but the sense is, uh, it's like this quote. It says, friend is always there, never leaves you, even though you haven't really met, necessarily. So some of the path, I think, is, is like a, it's a, a mating service or something like that. You know, where you, where you sign up and you find someone. Uh, it's the mating service is connecting with this dear friend, your own nature, your own Buddha nature. And I think a lot of people have some experience of feeling um, disconnected from our, our own true self. We have a lot of selves going on. You know, a lot of roles and a lot of obligations and a lot of duties and a lot of distractions, a lot of thoughts, adventures and mishaps, etc. cetera, um, that keep us occupied. But I think sometimes um, almost like a kind of scratching at us from inside is like, don't forget about me. I'm who you really are. Don't forget who you really are. Don't forget your one true friend. So in Buddha nature, it's, it's interesting that there are you know, endless books about it, so and many with different interpretations of it. Um, my teacher used a strange term. He called it enlightened genes, enlightened genes. So I compared it to like DNA and, and our genetic makeup, you know, which comes to us. We don't actually notice it, but it's there and affects us all the time, whatever our particular, you know, we have blue eyes or brown eyes or big ears or small ears or whatever we have. 
but it's in there, working its way, uh, doing its gene thing, you know, deciding we're going to get sick or not get sick, etc. And they said, so Buddha nature is said to be um, like genes. They're in our inheritance. They're inheritance and sometimes just working away within us when we may not be that aware of it. And also it said that it's connected with inheritance, like the it's kind of a natural inclination that we can connect with, a natural inclination of the human journey. And there are lots of little um, stories told, but, but for instance, uh, said that it is natural, it seems difficult and challenging to think of awakening, <laughs> you know, becoming enlightened, but it said that's what we're designed to do. It's like genes, we're designed to do it. They, they are programmed into us. Um, the notion of uh, Buddha nature. They said one image is, uh, you know, plant an acorn and you get an oak tree. Somewhere in the acorn doesn't know it's an oak tree. Probably. Well, I'm not sure what acorns know, but <laughs> I'm guessing they don't know they're an oak tree, but they are. And we don't know we're Buddha, but we are. That's that's a kind of a radical teaching on Buddha nature. It said you plant a human, and you get a Buddha. You plant an acorn, and you get an oak tree. And there's many ways that we can cultivate and come to a more intimate friendship with this, uh, our own selves, so to speak. And of course, here in Zendo, you're doing many, many of those things. The starting point really is working with uh, what's called um, mindfulness and also awareness, basically meditation practice of taming the mind, settling the mind, becoming less distracted and, and reckless, but also touching a sense of well-being and peace. So in some ways, you're just starting by becoming more of a friend with yourself, just your regular self more at ease and less fearful of parts of yourself that are kind of forbidden territory, more integrated of the whole of yourself. So sometimes it's, think of meditation, we, we tend to think of it as such a, you know, mental, working with the mind all the time, but it's also a heart opening and a kind of different relationship with yourself. So it's called becoming more at ease, more at peace with yourself. Ashashamata actually, the, the Sanskrit term for mindfulness is, comes from the root for peace. You know, sham, which is like salam, shalom, sham, peace. Peaceful mind. And that's linked with an equally important quality that's kind of a, what would you call it, a emergent property that comes from shamatha practice, from mindfulness practice, that dawns, is not a practice, but it dawns naturally, is an opening out of mind and a clarifying of mind, clarity. So that is called vipassana, and that means clear seeing, clear seeing. Um, it, it is um, also a quality of when you learning to hold and focus your mind, there can be a sudden relaxation outward, a sudden relaxation outward. So the quality of 
attention is there, but the effort can relax and the mind can expand. And Buddha nature is all about expanding our horizons, expanding a capacity of our heart, expanding capacity of our mind, and expanding our intentions that come with our vow to help in this world in whatever way, talents, or situation we have to, to lessen the incredible injustice, oppression, suffering, and uh, confusion and chaos of all kinds, which is basically our world. So, Buddha nature. So on that ground of mindfulness, awareness, shamatha, vipassana, settling and relaxing, focusing and opening, the uh, practice of the what are called the four limitless ones is one of the main uh, ways of cultivating our connection with Buddha nature. They're called sometimes the, the idea of limitless is interesting. You know, uh, all of them work with limits we place, and in cultivating Buddha nature, we're actually at least gently and slowly trying to expand our limits a little bit, you know, a little bit less stingy, a little bit less self-centered, a little bit less lazy, whatever, in, in a way that just gradually, hopefully, can, uh, can extend our um, connection. So the, the first of these four limitless ones is the uh, cultivating the, the firm intention, the firm wish, to cultivating in our heart, deep within us, the wish, but more than the wish, the um, attention to help all beings be more happy, yourself and all beings. May all beings enjoy happiness and the root of happiness. So it brings up the question, what is the root of happiness? And what is happiness? It also includes oneself. You know, I sometimes, um, when we want to do good, so to speak, we keep thinking of the projects we need to do, but we need to also cultivate a sense of well-being and health and happiness within ourselves if they're going to be effective in working with others. So cultivating and exploring, what is this true happiness? And what is the happiness that, that's, that's steady and reliable as opposed to so dependent on external conditions? We can't control most external conditions. Or in actually, from a kind of control of internal conditions. We can't control much of anything, really. <laughs> but uh, the sense is this, uh, this kind of happiness that we're, we're aspiring to uh, cultivate in ourselves and in all beings is not dependent on situation is good, situation is bad. I, I like this, I don't like that. Uh, I'm with this awful person, I'm with this amazing person, whatever it is that makes you happy or unhappy. There's a sense of a thread of happiness, which I think is a, 
kind of different than we often think of it. Because limitless means it's non-dual. It's non-dual. It's not based on, um, I just put everything together just right, and then I'm happy, and then if something gets messed up, and then collapse into unhappiness, and then I build it up again, and then it goes and build it up. The happiness treadmill or something, and all the fake promises of what actually causes happiness, and the disappointments when you try this and try that, and nothing works. Uh, so this is a limitless happiness. It's for limitless ones. So it kind of goes beyond what a, a narrow or um, conventional uh, models of happiness, you know, which were were kind of uh, pitched all the time. You know, take this pill, it will make you happy. Take this drug, go to this vacation place, do take, join this spiritual cult, do this, do that, and then it'll it'll work. You know, we'll fix you. And actually, that's it's kind of a barrage of that all the time, which means basically acknowledging or that people don't feel quite right, you know, because they haven't connected with this Buddha nature. So the second of the four limitless ones is uh, may all beings uh, be free from suffering and the root of suffering. And you can see it's a very similar kind of uh, logic that uh, recognizing within ourselves and other beings the many, many forms of suffering in all the different realms. And this is at every level from emotional suffering and physical suffering, mental suffering, all, all kinds. And the sense of arousing, arising, feeding, catalyzing the wish that all beings be free from suffering and find its root. Eradicate it from the root. You could say, then, what is the root of suffering? It could be different things depending on kind of which kind of suffering you look at. But no matter what the the kind of suffering, there's an underlying kind of root that we have to find, examine, and look into. And of course, the Buddha found many reasons and. Depending on which dimension you're looking at, you'll find different things. You know, there's the, the structural and the personal. And of course, the structures come from people. But we expand our ability to cause suffering by creating kind of, kind of institutions of suffering and uh, habits of suffering in all sorts of ways. So there comes that uh, many dimensions in this regard. But at least we could begin to notice how we beat up on our own selves and uh, the people around us. But then there's a sense of, again, what is the non-dual? What is the limitless quality here? So those are always uh, pushing to that. It's not just making conditions better, which we should do. <laughs> they are absolutely obligated to help make conditions better in just an ordinary conventional sense whenever we can. But we have to realize that we're not really eradicating it from the root. We're just fixing one thing, and there'll be another problem popping up and try to fix that and um, endlessly. So then there's, uh, the third one is, may all beings enjoy joy and the root of joy. And that is a certain kind of joyfulness. And in particular, it's the joyfulness that we 
we uh, have when we appreciate the accomplishments or the well-being of, of others. Uh, it's kind of the, the easiest example of that is the parents who are so filled with joy if something good happens to their children. Because often when something good happens to someone else, we just feel pathetic by comparison. <laughs> or we feel jealous why they so well off and why am I so broken. Or, or we feel competitive and uh, destructive. <laughs> well, I'm going to get rid of them and I'm going to take their place. So that sense of, you know, even when you see like, I, I realized in, because I'm old, <laughs> I realized in life that there's many, many people who are so incredibly accomplished. They can do all these amazing things. And I can, so I will think, why can't I do that? <laughs> why can't, how come they can do all those things? How is that amazing? Uh, and uh, so you can either then feel belittled because you can't, you know, don't have those particular talents. Or you can think, what's amazing that with all the mess that humans make of things, they can do amazing things at the same time. And so this is also connected with a kind of an appreciation. It's, it's easy to lose appreciation, to lose even noticing the well-being of others, letting alone wishing for it, and uh, uh, getting caught in kind of cynicism and uh, despair and... Uh, just freak out about all the things going wrong, everything's going bad. And, and then if you watch the news and things like that, then it just gets worse and worse and worse. And uh, you begin to forget the, uh, these accomplishments and wish for these uh, accomplishments and appreciate um, the, those kind of things. And then the fourth of the limitless ones is uh, equanimity. May all beings enjoy equanimity rest in equanimity, free from passion, aggression, and uh, prejudice or delusion or um, well, there many translations. But the idea of that is one of the most important of the four, I think. And the equanimity is equalness, e equalness. And it has different meanings. There's a standard meaning of, of being grounded, you know, having some gravitas, being grounded so you're not pulled easily this way and that by the ups and downs and the uh, interactions of, of life. But it also has a equal between near, medium, and far that it says all, all people the same. So it's easy to be, you know, raise benevolent thoughts of people are near to us and a little bit harder for people we don't know very well and really, really hard for people we don't like or are harmful to us. And it said, near, far, the same, equal, everyone equal, high or low, you know, and most of us have um, difficulty with certain types of people. You know, some people have difficulty relating to people more powerful and some people have difficulty relating to people less well-off or less educated, whatever. And there are all sorts of boundaries we have, again, going to the limitless thing, boundaries we have for our compassion and our practice. And the image of the, the equanimity, and, and particularly with the limitless one of uh, joining with the extending of the heart-mind of, of compassion, is it's, it's 
more like the, the sun. You know, the sun is the primal image of the uh, effortless, compassionate action. The sun isn't on a project to help anyone, I don't think. <laughs> Likewise, I don't know what acorns think. I don't know what the sun thinks either. But let me just say it anyway. The, the sun just shines, and uh, it doesn't discriminate. It, as every gardener knows, the sun shines on the weeds as well as on all the plants you put in. And it doesn't say that you're worthy of me and, and you're not worthy of, of me. And it does it uh, nurtures all life without expecting any kind of a reward or uh, personal benefit. So awakened genes, Buddha nature, the sense of different schools of thought look at it differently, but the idea within you, literally, you know, within your being, it said there's a um, seed of Buddha nature from some traditions, and others more radical say there's a fully formed Buddha there if you only could look. So there's a lot of emphasis on seeing, how you see yourself and how you see others, seeing that Buddha in another, seeing that within yourself. And cultivating, in some ways you could think of a path of cultivating some trust in that. But not just blind faith, okay, I, someone said I have Buddha nature, <laughs> so I believe, I believe in Buddha nature, and I make it happen, but um, discovering it, discovering it. And, and so how do you do that by Shamatha Vipassana by training yourself and also by cultivating the wish for alleviation of suffering, increasing of happiness and uh, joy and equanimity. So there are a lot of, um, I guess you could say, signposts or something that, that uh, at least in the Tibetan tradition, they like lists. Uh, probably more so than in Zen, I think. You don't have to deal with all these lists. <laughs> but we have lots of lists. <laughs> There's lists of nine, and then lists of three, and then the, each of the nine things has three parts, and those three parts have another three parts. They just love that stuff. So, um, but some of them are really useful, at least you know, for reminders. And I think it came from... Uh, spoken tradition and ways to remember things through lists. And some lists we share, like the six paramitas, the four reminders, the, the uh, four limitless ones, etc. Um, so I wanted to, uh, there's lists regarding to Buddha nature of, of all sorts. And I'm just thinking about two, two short lists, two each, <laughs> it's very easy. And I thought they'd be helpful uh, if um, you wanted to kind of explore this more on your own and, and look into this uh, uh, question. And you should question it. You could say, doesn't seem to me but uh, people have Buddha nature. They seem to have a bunch of jerks, a lot of them. <laughs> so but this Buddha nature obviously doesn't mean everyone's really nice all the time. And it doesn't mean, you know, some people, if you do the right things and you act the right way, and then you can, then they obviously have Buddha nature because look how special they are. 
but this is, it actually is more, even more radical than that. Uh, fundamentally, is all sentient beings Buddha. That means like all sentient beings, you know, that's even stranger to think of. You know, you could give it other terms that, um, that some people use the term uh, basic goodness. I find that not quite right because it implies good versus bad, and this is not a good versus bad kind of thing. Because it's like in that quote, it's a Buddha nature's in everyone, then there's no alternate, you know, there's no other thing to, f to feel the contrast. That kind of joy is that you don't feel particularly high because it, you're high all the time. You have Buddha nature all the time, so you don't have to feel particularly, you know, high about it. So these two uh, little lists that I chose out about, geez, I don't know, lots of lists about Buddha nature. But these are practical ones. It says, okay, you're working on this, you're aspired to figure out whether this is true or holds water at all, which is important to do. Try to notice uh, within yourself, that's part of it. It's just something, it's not like you're trying to manufacture something that you are not. It's trying to unmanufacture what you are not. <laughs> That's the basic logic, you know. You're trying to unmanufacture yourself. Sometimes that's called unlearning. You're learning all sorts of things that are wrong about your world and who you are. That's a, uh, what this is about. So, unlearning, unlearning. So, this is, first list is signs to look for. Signs to look for that you're making some progress in cultivating Buddha nature. So that's nice to know. There's signs to you could actually say I'm getting somewhere. Because <laughs> it doesn't always feel that way. Uh, and that's an interesting topic anyway. That we tend to, I don't know, I think people tend to think, well, you start out and you're a student and you're trying to learn the tradition, etc. And then then there's at the end when you imagine that you're going to be, you know, fully awakened or something. But all the little steps along the way, there are little signposts and, and things that really are helpful to notice. And I think because Buddhists tend to be kind of, kind of meek and humble sometimes, not, not all of them, but <laughs> so they feel embarrassed to notice the signs of their own progress. They say that it's arrogant or they feel arrogant or feel like, you know, questionable. But there's actually a lot of guys who you should look for. Notice when you have little openings. Notice when you have little insights. And acknowledge that. That's a good thing. It's not to hold. Not to hold or to make a big deal out of everything. But it's also not good to just avoid noticing that and just working on everything that's wrong that you're trying to fix. So more care, less stick sometimes is good that way. There are these signposts. So the first one is um, Maitri. This is a Tibetan word. I think probably mostly know it as metta or Maitri, but it means loving kindness. So one of the most uh, important signs to look for in yourself or anyone else, but mostly it means yourself. Are you more gentle? Are you more kind? And not as, uh, 
spontaneously so? Does your uh, heart kindness show itself more naturally and easily? You know, Maitri, are you more of a friend with yourself? Do you have greater uh, love and care and a certain kind of ease and appreciation of yourself in your life? So Maitri, friendliness, loving kindness, are you more friendly? (laughs) You know, it's very simple, straightforward stuff. Those are good signs, yeah. And the second one, sign to look for, is uh, lack of deception. Are you more truthful? Are you less pretentious? Are you less phony? Are you more raw and open and un, un, um, afraid to speak up? Are you able to, to be a straightforward and looking at yourself in situations you are in? No lying, less lying to yourself and, and other, other beings. So those are all good signs. So if you notice either of those, you say, yay me, <laughs> I noticed something. Uh, and then, of course, there are signs to watch out for. There's also two in this particular kind of teaching and drawing from. The first one is being unable to react to suffering, closing down to suffering. And that's a big one, I think. Sometimes it, it's just so much of it, you know. How much can you handle, right? How much do you just have to just shut down? And that's a tricky one to talk about because we have to be honest, since we're honest because we have the good signs, (laughs) honest about our um, capacity, what we can take in, you know, to be kind to yourself. But I think we can feel it. You can feel ourselves shut down. We just don't want to hear about it. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. So somehow, some kind of forms of suffering that we encounter, we can actually do something about, and we just can just do it. But then there's some forms of suffering that are so hard to be able to continue to react to because we can't, we don't find a way we can do anything about it, certain kinds of things. And there it is. Uh, Sometimes we, we uh, have people in our lives who they're just creating endless stream of, of suffering uh, from the way they view things, and you can't you can't generally fix it, and you see you see it going where it's going in a dark way, and you can't always stop it. Terrible how to hold that, how to react in a way that, that is cultivating a compassion and wisdom, not just, just crushing your own self in the process. So that's a, a, a tricky thing. So that's why it depends so strongly on that base of uh, strength that comes from mindfulness and awareness. 
And the second thing to watch out for in this list, <laughs> and whenever you hear a list like that, you think of all the other things they didn't put on the list, and that's part of the point of list, so don't be worried about this is the only things. It's not, obviously. <laughs> Uh, the world it doesn't work like that. Um, the second one is said, um, not having bigger vision, not having bigger vision. And in some ways, I think that's a key, one of the key uh, challenges of the uh, Mahayana tradition, which is Zen and Tantra, all part of the Mahayana tradition. Maha means big. And um, our tendency is, is so much to get absorbed in just the small, smallest, smallest world that we're in, our smallest view of ourselves, our smallest view of our world, or what we're doing, is kind of a, a narrowing down. And just, it's almost like the world is so big and scary. And then you sort of <coughs> occupy yourself with uh, you know, like one stitch after another, you know, getting through one day after another, one thing after another. No vision. It's Mahayana is visionary. You know, it envisions outrageous things like Buddha nature. But then there's such a vastness, such a spacious quality that it can be frightening for for those of us who want to create a little cozy little world that's less less challenging. And so there's a sometimes a, if you have that experience when you. You step into something spacious, and it, you can feel the kind of the tension and and fear arises often. When there's this option to go bigger, you know, at those turning points, you could go big, or you could retreat. You can feel that that thing, and the Mahayana says, "Well, <laughs> go a little further." Again, there's a sense of kind of stretching our horizons, bit by bit stretching our view. And, and if you look at the concerns, you know, that occupy our, us, honestly, so many of them are so trivial and, and boring and uh, unvisionary and uh, uh, in every which way, and just kind of repetitive and... Uh, just spinning out things that trivia, you know, trivia and uh, superficial uh, stuff. So this sense of okay, so think a little bit bigger of your life. Sort of uh, have more honor and dignity about what you're about. You know, not a little worm kind of trying to crawl onto your cushion, but you you're a Buddha. So when you're practicing meditation, you're, you're actually being Buddha. And you could say this, another way of looking at the, the practice is it's, it's, it's um, shortening the sense of separation between you and uh, awakened heart, awakened mind. It's separating the sense that that's out there, and I'm trying to get there. And that means you're just running away from what you're trying to get to, in a way. So this is like, okay, eh, turn around, <laughs> come back uh, to where it's really happening, kind of. So, awakened heart, seeing that, experiencing that. I'm using see, but it doesn't mean, see, obviously, see. It's 
connecting with that quality in ourselves and looking for little glimpses and signs of what um, a nature kind of wants to come out. <laughs> it, it want, it's like a wants to be born. It's, it's sort of like a, something went wrong and the, the fetus just stayed in and never came out. <laughs> it wants to come out. <laughs> um, the, uh, and we just have to let it, I guess you'd say. So there's a lot of uh, delight in uh, Buddha Dharma, uh, delight. And it's said the Mahayana uh, is marked primarily by joy. And what is that joy? Joy is an entry, it's a doorway into the Mahayana in, in my tradition. And that joy comes about because we've had some glimpse of uh, Buddha nature and of bodhicitta um, in our poverty mind, in our sense, in our self doubt, in our uh, looking down on ourselves, and our our uh, fear and sense of failure, or loss somewhere, something in us, something in our experiences opens some little little glimpse of an alternative, something that. And not only that, it's not just an alternative, it's um, uh, often, I think when people get involved in a you know, practice like this, there's kind of an interruption or a, a kind of a reconnecting. And we recognize something that we already knew. And in some ways, this, this sense of Buddha nature, as experientially, I think, is very much of encountering, realizing that you actually already know something, although it tends to kind of, kind of gurgle down and, and, and you can't kind of make it come back always, but you have some suspicion. It's sort of like suspicion. Uh, suspicion comes up that you've lost a connection that's the most precious one you could ever have. And when you see the possibility that's reconnected that, when you get a glimpse that reconnecting, then you really want to, to pursue that and figure out how to prepare yourselves or to uh, cultivate those qualities that will extend those glimpses of awakening, those glimpses of your true nature, Buddha nature. So I thought I'd read the quotes once again. And uh, I haven't kept track of time, so it doesn't matter, does it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> My boss over there. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to read the two quotes in the reverse order, just to kind of sandwich the talk. and. Um, that will be it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, the first or second, depending on what. <laughs> the first, second quote, second, first quote. That's it, yeah. The first, second quote, second, first quote uh, is by Chogyam Trungpa, which is that one. And it says, once you realize that the Dharma is you and you are in it already, you don't feel particularly joyous. So that sense is, 
important too that that's so much a part of Mahayana teachings in, in, in my tradition is that we keep thinking that there's a separation, that the Dharma is out there and I'm here and practicing the Dharma. It's, uh, and the idea is becoming one with the Dharma, the famous chant, may my mind be one with the Dharma, not studying the Dharma, not practicing the Dharma, but being the Dharma. So that comes from that kind of tradition. And those are different things. <laughs> those are different things. And they have to do with that quality of unworthiness that we feel, because we don't trust it that usually, I don't think. Okay, there is no extra bliss, bummer, of any kind, or high at all. If you are high, then you're high all the time, so there's no reference point of comparison. So that's the quality of limitless as well. Limitless comes up all the time in the teachings of having beyond comparison mind, because mostly on a practical level and altogether, we live in comparison mind and um, this versus that, good versus bad, you know, head versus backwards, you know, progress versus backsliding. And this is the idea there's a way of looking that's not based on comparison mind. That's interesting altogether to explore that because we're really in the comparison mind world, I think, mostly. If you're not high, then you're extraordinarily ordinary. And that quality of ordinariness is also a big theme, in the, at least in the Tibetan tradition, of um, sort of cutting through that idea that you have to appear in a certain way as a spiritual practitioner or a spiritual teacher or something like that. And the spiritual teachers, it's very easy to kind of buy into, you got to present yourself in a certain way that students expect if you're a spiritual teacher. And we have all sorts of projections like that. And we miss out on a lot of teachers that way, on a limited view. How limited? Fundamentally, the limitless view is a, the phenomenal world is an incredible teacher, all aspects of the phenomenal world become the teacher. And um, I, I was, Trungpa uh, was taught, uh, working, walking with some students, and I think it was in Santa Fe many years ago, and uh, they walked past this um, homeless guy, you know, drunk, lying on a bench, and they were about to walk by, and, and uh, Trungpa uh, sat down with the guy and, and was talking with him, and he, then they uh, having a final time, and then they walked off, and he said, "That was a siddha. That person is a siddha. He's an awakened one." And so you never know what package you will see these people and what kind of uh, uh, you know recognition. So we recognize people by all sorts of standards that are probably not even the point at all. And, and in the history of the, our lineage, there's so many characters you would not expect to be great masters, but are exalted and talked about centuries later that had different roles, you know, with homeless people. One guy just lived on discarded fish guts from, you know, one person, you know, made 
oil, worked in an oil factory, various weird things, farmers, and, and just regular people. Uh, and somehow, sometimes in our society, there's this kind of sense of, uh, what do you call it? <laughs> Not the salt of the earth types, but more the intellectual uh, uh, upper middle class types. <laughs> So much in it, and um, and that that needs to expand and uh, horizons. Uh, you could say, you know, when when people had to come up and during <laughs> during the COVID, um, then it became clear who the essential workers really were. So then you could say, well, who are the essential workers that are going to bring the benefits of the Buddhist training to where it's most needed? We need those firemen and grocery store workers and the EMTs and equivalent. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the second quote, the first, the second, the second first quote, no, yeah, wait. Second? <laughs> That's right, right? The second first quote yeah. uh, is the one uh, from Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, uh, which goes, Sooner or later, you will have to part from even your dearest friends. But one friend will never leave you, even though you may never be aware of its existence. So that's really hopeful because if we don't get it together and have signs of Maitri and like a, uh, it's still there. It doesn't, you know, that's that's the whole point. It's there no matter what, you know. Uh, you begin to discover it by listening to the teachings of a spiritual master. Ties will deepen as you cultivate sustained mental calm and profound insight. That's shamatha and vipassana into reality. In the end, you'll discover that it has always been near you and will always be near you. This is the truest friendship you will ever cultivate. So let's do it. Let's cultivate it. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's all I had. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.